Hello world, what is up? Welcome back to The Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and for today's episode, we're talking about two of my favorite things, compassion and robots. This right here, this is season two, my friends. As the most loyal of listeners may recall, at the end of season one, I hinted that this year we'd be shifting our conversation slightly and asking some really big questions. But worry not, at our heart, as Dr. Alan Cowan has said multiple times, this is a podcast about emotion. You see, last season, we explored how science is just beginning to map out how all our nuanced feelings and expressions shape our daily lives. This season, we'll discuss how these emotions shape our families, communities, society, and the surprising ways modern technology has upended these familiar structures. Because here's the thing. Technologies are already processing our cues and our emotions, right? That's happening. We all know that. But... They shouldn't be designed to exploit them. We'll explore how scientists and technologists are seeking to bring empathy to social media, robots, digital art, and a ton of other stuff, building equity and compassion into these ubiquitous AI-driven systems. Now, with all that being said, once again, we find ourselves in a position where an incredibly smart, accomplished, and generous individual has decided to grant us a little bit of their time. I could easily be talking about Alan, but he's always here, uh, which for the record, I am grateful for. Uh, speaking of which, Alan, how are you doing, sir? Doing great. How are you, Matt? I'm doing great, man. It's great to be back at it with you. Uh, but obviously, I'm not talking about Alan. I'm talking about today's guest, whose remarkable life journey has led them to the forefront of consumer robotics. He's worked for NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab and has sent his tech to Mars. Uh, he revived former startup Evolution Robotics with a product so far ahead of the competition, iRobot had no choice but to buy the company and put him in charge of their tech. And now he's the founder and CEO of Embodied whose companion robot, Moxie, redefines our relationship with technology and lays the groundwork for a far more optimistic future than perhaps James Cameron or Arthur C. Clarke might have suggested. Uh, please welcome to the show the fantastic, the awesome, I'm super thrilled he's here. Paolo Perjanian is here. Paolo, thank you so much, sir. It has been a long road here. How are you doing today? I'm good. Nice to meet you, Matt and Alan. Great to be here. Uh, it's so nice to have you and to meet you and have you on our show. It's it's really exciting. Uh, I want to jump right in and, and get in today's conversation. You know, when we think about robots with compassion, I personally, I think of Wally, R2-D2, even Johnny Five, to date myself a little bit here. Uh, but let's let's start in a fun place. I'd love to hear from both of you, just uh, simply some pop culture robots that might have inspired you or you have a soft spot for. Who are, who are some of your favorite pop culture robots? Alan, give me a favorite pop culture yeah. robot. I love the ones you mentioned. I love Wally, R2D2, um, Baymax uh, from Big Hero 6, huge fan, um, big, big robot, but soft, uh, kind hearted, sensitive. Uh, that's the kind of robot I like. Yeah. What about you, Polly? Do you have any favorite pop culture robots? Yeah, I was going to say Baymax. Baymax is my favorite also. Uh, my recent one actually is Bebots. Uh, if you have not seen the new animated movie by Disney that recently came out, Ron's Gone Wrong. It's an amazing animated movie about a robot that helps children uh, that are socially um, not successful mm -hmm. to find success and, and make connections and friendships. 
Yeah, that, that that's uh, another beautiful robot. A lot of really nice, sweet robots coming into pop culture these days. Uh, and then the flip side of that coin, of course, uh, when we think of robots without compassion, you've got HAL 9000, T-1000, Ultron, Gort. Uh, other, other than the obviously way more ominous naming scheme, you know, what is the difference, right? Why, why are those not the robots that we have a fuzzy feeling? How are they not compassionate robots? Uh, let's start here. All right. So, Alan, as, as my emotion science and nuance expert here, how do you define compassion, right? Where, where does it fall on the map? Yeah. I mean, compassion is a range of expressions that we make. So there's expressions of sympathy like, oh, or, oh, um, and they kind of reflect what somebody else is experiencing. There's ways that we reflect that with our face, with eye contact, kind of head tilt, nodding. Those are all sort of ways we express compassion. But to be compassion, they all have to be authentic. Um, and we seek authenticity in people's engagement with us and how their reactions reflect patience, reflect an acknowledgement and understanding of what we're feeling, curiosity about our feelings, mm -hmm. uh, an orientation toward you know, what somebody's experiencing and not an evaluative orientation or a judgmental orientation. And so these are all ways that we find compassion in others. Um, some of that's easy for robots. You know, you could add expressions to robots, but it's hard to get it to be authentic. It's hard for people to really trust that this is something that cares about me. That's the challenge. Well, one of the words that jumped out to me is the curiosity uh, and, and the idea of getting a robot to be curious. And, and I'd love to kind of open that box up a little bit. Um, because in the videos I've seen of Moxie, Moxie asks a lot of questions. Moxie feels curious. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that, Paolo. How, how important is curiosity in, in sort of creating compassion within a robot? Well, I think it's super important. And the way Moxie is doing it is really using a trick to get the child to reflect on things that may not they may not have thought about themselves. So it's encouraging them, giving them an opportunity and a safe space in which you start thinking about, yeah, why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? And, and that reflection is an opportunity to learn more about yourself and understanding your emotions and your feelings, which opens up a new door, which gives Moxie an opportunity to start teaching the child strategies about how to manage your emotions to cope with things such as anxiety and, yeah. and other uh, difficult situations. For sure. There's so many uh, amazing things that Moxie does that I'm excited to talk to you about. Uh, forget Now, hang in there with me because I'm going to say a lot of stuff, but I promise I have a point at the end of this. So forgive me if I'm oversimplifying things, Paolo, but uh, essentially, if you break down your most significant contribution to the Roomba at iRobot, it was that before you, the Roomba was just kind of randomly bouncing off the walls and furniture. And at some point, it would have cleaned the room. But you and your team, you had uh, put a camera and lasers and a small computer all for under 20 bucks, if I remember correctly, onto the robot, which basically gave it the ability to create a data set, right? And know where it is. And, and in this case, data set would be the room. And that makes basic decisions based on that set. It can make a more efficient path and clean the room better, which says to me, a robot is only as smart as the data it has to work with. Uh, okay. Is everything I said there so far relatively accurate and approximately correct? Yes. Cool. Okay. Bear with me then. So then I assume in order for a robot to be compassionate and emotionally intelligent, it requires what has to be an immensely complex data set. How do you solve for that problem? Because you can't just point lasers at my face to find out if I'm happy or sad or anxious. So how did you guys sort of approach that issue with Moxie? 
Uh, well, again, it's about using data to to be able to create awareness of the environment mm-hmm. uh, as well as the child. Uh, so we use uh, we have a single camera on Moxie, and we have microphones. We have uh, contact sensors, touch sensors, and we have accelerometers, so movement and so on. So that that is all it takes for us to understand by visually seeing the child. Uh, analyzing the image, finding the face, finding the eyes, and allowing the robot to actually make eye contact, which I think in the first uh, protocol of interaction, human-to-human interaction, eye contact is super important, right? If if I talk to you and I'm looking away, you may consider that as rude or awkward at best. Mm -hmm. Then microphones, again, probably one of the cheapest sensors you can buy. Microphones are extremely low cost. But yet, you can use them to understand voice. Uh, apart from the conversation and content of conversation, there is also a lot of emotion that can be encoded in the uh, expressivity of the voice that the child uses. Uh, you can hear in my voice whether I'm excited, sad, depressed, even potentially. Uh, so, those are primarily the two sensors we use. Mm-hmm. Both of those are probably the lowest cost, cost sensors you can imagine. The camera also, as in these days, is about a dollar or two. Wow. The, the challenge that comes with those sensors is the processing required to really understand the signals that they produce has had um, the entire technology uh, community in the last many decades trying to understand what are the algorithms that can robustly extract information that we can use to to take action on it. And only in the recent years have we seen uh, progress, and that's thanks to uh, the neural networks combined with uh, availability of data sets as well as enough compute power, right? The combination of those things has allowed us to do things that when I was doing my PhD 20 plus years ago, we could barely recognize lines, uh, right? And now we can do amazing things very robustly and at much lower compute power required. Well, it's one of those things that you, uh, you know, that you mentioned that when you were doing your PhD, and I had read somewhere that you said one of the earliest inspirations was uh, the Pixar short Luxo Jr., right? And I looked it up because I remember that short. That was 1986. And so that's like 30, you know, 36 some odd years ago. What is it like now to finally be here and be present and be at the forefront and see all this technology catch up to all of these ambitions and dreams that you had three decades ago? It's it's fantastic to see, but but at the same time, it it has, I would say from my perspective, it has taken a lot of patience because what <laughs> Loxo Jr. inspired me to do was to actually go to school and and pursue computer science and robotics. And then uh, decades later, we are able actually to bring those kind of ideas to life because the technology has just taken that long. In the in in perspective of history, 20, 30 years is not that long. And also we know there is an acceleration of innovation happening. The, we don't want to maybe say singularity, but definitely there's an exponential ex- acceleration happening. So what has happened in the last 30 years felt slow but what is going to happen in the next three years is going to completely blow out of water what what we have accomplished in the last 30 years yeah 
I, I can't even fathom. It's it, it's obviously a wild ride that we're all in for. Okay, so one of my big questions, and I feel like we're 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 answering it. Alan, maybe you can help me. Is is it even possible for robots to actually be compassionate? Based on what you've said, compassion is based on what Paolo said. Robots can do. Is it possible for robots to be compassionate? What do we think? Yeah, I mean, in, in, not in necessarily an emotional sense. You don't need the robot to be feeling emotions, but it is possible for a robot to be programmed to care about your emotional experience and for you to be convinced that that's the case uh, and authentically. Um, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily require artificial general intelligence. I mean, maybe this is something we can talk about. I think it really requires uh, a robot that's honest about its limitations, about what it's able to understand, what it isn't able to understand, that asks questions. And when you think about robots like R2-D2, uh, like Baymax that we talked about earlier, these are robots that displayed sort of almost a, <laughs> ignorance of, of, of humanity. And yet at the same time, we think of these as like uh, having good intent. Like we can kind of tell that these are robots who uh, want to serve our well-being, um, that are earnest about it, uh, actively care about um, what we value, but are still learning. They're still learning and exploring. Um, and, you know, we, we don't want to get to a point where the robot seems to understand more uh, than it cares about or seems to have a, you know, really deep understanding of our emotional state and our intent and motivations, but doesn't seem to actually care about those things or have an understanding of how to respond positively to those things. That's where those things can become out of line. So as long as those uh, go hand in hand, I think we're okay. We just don't want one to get too far in front of the other. Got it. How how do we maintain that balance? Right. That's a, easier said than done, I imagine. Yeah, I mean that's that's the golden question. Um, I mean, it you know really has to do with um, thinking about the motives of mm -hmm. an agent and how do you convey them. Um, so you know if if the agent is really really smart, if we're talking about a HAL nine thousand or um, you know generally intelligent robot. Um, we have to really be convinced that has good intent, right? right? If it seems to be serving some hidden objective that's that's kind of contrary to our objectives, even if it's showing signs of emotional intelligence, it actually may look worse, right? It may look like a psychopath. Um, and so we need to be convinced that it understands <laughs> what, you know, what we're trying to convey with our emotional expressions and it actually has the intent of serving uh, of serving our goals. Well, this dovetail, and pal, I don't want to cut you off if you had a thought, but it dovetails nicely into a question that was next up on my list, which is if you do, if you take pop culture out of it for a second, and I imagine this is a question that would have had to have come up at some point in the four-year development of Moxie, is why are some people scared of robots? You talk about how with the certain behaviors, it can be interpreted as a potential psychopath, right? So that's an obvious instance of why we'd be scared of that particular robot. But I got a buddy to this day, he won't go on Pirates of the Caribbean and Disney World because he, quote, doesn't trust them. And there's just like people I know that are just afraid of robots. Why do we think that is? Where, where does that come from? Did you guys discuss that at all when you were coming up with, uh, with Moxie and like how to keep it from being scary for certain people? Yeah, for sure. And, and, um, I mean, we do our best, but but I think it's natural human behavior to react that way to things that are unknown. Mm -hmm. I mean, anytime there is a new technology that gets introduced uh, to us, people uh, have skepticism. 
uh, when computers were first introduced, everyone was uh, under the impression that they are going to lose their jobs. Look what happened. The economies grew way beyond our imagination. And I think the same thing is going to happen with robotics when people talk about replacement of jobs. Yes, there will be a replacement, but people will actually move up the hierarchy and get better jobs rather than standing in a factory and repeating the same motion over for 10 hours a day every day for the rest of your life. Uh, so uh, it's, I think it's, it's, it's healthy to have some skepticism. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the end of the day, my personal view on this topic, which comes up very often, is that the technology does not have an intent of its own, doesn't have a malicious intent or a uh, positive intent. Mm -hmm. It's a tool. It's how we humans and maybe innovators and engineers decide to do with that technology and how we direct that technology. So if you have engineers or scientists and business people behind the concept that has the intent to help and be technology for good, that product probably will be positive and beneficial to the society. But the same exact set of technologies could be used by a company that wants to exploit you, use it for war, uh, use it for exploiting you on social media, creating addictive loops so that teenagers uh, get uh, addicted to spending eight hours a day on social media, leading to suicide rates being at record highs today. It is, it is our responsibility, and I think technology is just a tool. Right. Did um, did design factor into that heavily as well? Because you talk about uh, uh, you know, weapons and things of that nature. I know Moxie is, is very soft edges. The the decision to use a projected screen instead of a flat rectangular screen. I assume some of these uh, decisions were informed by the idea of making uh, uh something that's not really necessarily an imposing but an inviting figure. Was that the case? Absolutely. Absolutely. We wanted, uh, when I started the company, I started with a statement. I said, I don't want to create yet another white statuesque robot. Right. I want it to feel organic. I want it to be lifelike. And that led to many decisions, including the pro back projected face that you're talking about. Instead of having a display basically a monitor stuck in the head that looks like a monitor monitor stuck in the head we wanted to be true to the character uh and that came with a lot of implications on the hardware development many many challenges came with that to even including eyes on the robot if you look at any other robot in the market of similar realm they have fake features that look classic parts where the eyes should be because we know eyes are important. That's the designer telling the engineers eyes are important. But those eyes are plastic parts and they don't move to make eye contact, which is the engineers telling you it's extremely hard to make eyes that can make realistic eye contact without it to be, be becoming uncanny. Yeah. So we decided we are not going to cut corners. These are important things. If you want to have impact, we are going to make decisions that are going to take us years to develop and and here we are. That's why it took four or five years of R&D to get here. For sure. For sure. And you, you mentioned avoiding it being uncanny. And, and, and that's exactly where I was going to head. I was going to ask, Alan, you know, is the uncanny valley a part of all this, right? The uneasiness for our listeners unfamiliar. That's that's a, a simple explanation. The uneasiness you feel when you see something that's imperfectly human. Uh, you know, think of like a video game character you're watching at home and, and there's light, no life behind the eyes. But the skin is hyper detailed and that could be like kind of creepy. Um, Alan, where does that come from? What 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 yeah. is that? 
Solve that, <laughs> that for me. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, it's it's a bunch of things, um, and I don't think anybody uh, really has the full answer to this. But I see it as two different effects. Uh, one is the one you're talking about, where if, you know something looks too human, but it's just off. I think that t- taps into something really deep. Um, if it seems to have a human appearance, appearance, but it maybe it's something to do with illness. Maybe it's something to do with uh, an inability to predict what this thing actually is. Uh, that throws us off entirely. And that's sort of a low level effect. Um, and it could come from a lot of places. Um, maybe it even comes from our interaction or evolutionary history with things that are humanoid, but aren't human, like Denisovans or Neanderthals or something like that. Could, there's so many different explanations for that, but it's a really robust effect. But there's this, there's this other effect that I think is more high level, which is um, the uncanny valley effect of something that seems really smart being inauthentic. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be something that looks human at all. HAL 9000 has this uncanny effect in the movie, even though it has no body, right? It's a, it's a disembodied agent. Um, it has a voice, uh, which maybe is part of it. Um, but fundamentally, I think what we see is a sign of emotional intelligence in something that can't really be trusted to have good intent. Um, and we see that same effect for people who are psychopaths, essentially, if you see somebody who seems to understand you really well um, and is speaking, somewhat speaking your language or seems really receptive to your cues of emotion, but you think it deep down, there's some other goal that, you know, this thing, this person doesn't have your goal is in mind at all. Maybe it's a, you know, the sleaziest kind of like used car salesman archetype where, you know, they're trying to sell you something. um, And, you know, deep down, that there is an insincerity to what's being said, mm-hmm. that can have an uncanny valley effect as well. I'm hearing the significance of authenticity. It's it's huge. It's a big part of it. Um, Paolo, you'd said something when you left uh, Start Embodied, I think it was, and you were leaving iRobot, and you had, the, I'm paraphrasing obviously, of course, but it was essentially that you felt we were on the precipice of a massive change in how we interact with technology. You can feel like the winds of change. And that was like 2016-ish, I think, right? And I've been thinking about that a lot because I'm wondering what were you seeing and observing in the world at at that time that it was apparent to you that like, now's the tipping point. Now we're going to start seeing things really change. What was the, like the big flags for you that that caught your attention? I think the advancements we saw in uh, things such as speech recognition represented by Amazon Alexa, uh, the Echo, that was a big leap in technology. And I can tell you that very early days in my career, when I joined the first startup, uh, we were trying to develop a robot similar to Moxie 20 mm-hmm. plus years ago. Wow. And I remember walking to this uh, incubator uh, where they had the first version of a robot. It was looked like full metal jacket. That's what we called it. And uh, there was... Uh, a guy with a headphone walking behind a robot and screaming at it, March, stop. March, stop. These things are going to hate us eventually. They're just, it's going to happen. <laughs> and the robot just kept rolling on and on and on, and it would not recognize that simple command of March, stop. Right. March was the wake word, like Alexa, and stop was the command. It was just with a head, headphone, not even across the room while the TV is on and your child may be playing with a, your, right. your pet in the background, right? So that was a major leap. And this is an experience we all have had with uh, in-car voice recognition technologies before this revolution, like 10 years ago. If I use my in-car voice recognition, by the time I was able to verbally 
input the address of the destination, I was at the destination. It would take that was that was the friction point. And this is again enabled by deep neural networks, data, and computation. The same thing happened on computer vision, um, mm. and we are seeing it in even ability for uh, for for us to be able to generate uh, videos of animated people that are completely photorealistic, right? Cloning you, uh, deep face, and all these other things, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's what was what what was happening. Mm-hmm. So I felt that it's time to go and try to close mm-hmm. the gap from where we were on technology to applying all these technologies to building what I think is the next step in human-machine interaction, which involves embodiment, it involves body language, it involves... Uh, intonation of voice, emotional expressivity, and all that. One, awesome. Thank you so much for for sharing that and sharing your perspective. Uh, One of the interesting things I've been thinking about with Moxie is like, it's, you know, it's designed to aid and educate kids and how to better interact with humans and to improve their social intelligence and confidence. And and it's a tool to help children feel more confident, not just, you know, uh, with themselves, but with other humans. But the interesting thing is it's also establishing what they will then expect of robots and technology as they grow up and move forward. I'm reminded of when iPads launched and you'd see like toddlers pinching magazine pages trying to zoom in. Is is that a, I doubt that's a happy accident. That's got to be, I assume, intentional and something part of a larger plan on uh, uh, the decades to come and what you kind of envision, right? Because that's such a cool part of it to me that I don't think is immediately apparent to a lot of people is that this sort of sets the stage for the future they can imagine. I think uh, we are we scientists are trying to catch up with with what people have already imagined. Yeah. <laughs> the notion of having AI friends and uh, companions uh, is not new. It's decades old, uh, which by the way, it is a bit of a challenge for us scientists because the expectations are extremely high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are just trying to catch up. I think actually the expectations run away a little bit when they talk about robots taking over the world and so on. And I'm sometimes uh, tempted to say, come to our lab and see what problems we are dealing with. We're trying to get the robot like to move an inch and you think it's going to run after me and jump on me and grab me and uh, capture me, you know? So there is a long way to go. It's so funny because you th- yeah, you mentioned that. And I think anytime Boston Dynamics decides to scare the living daylights out of the rest of the world with their most recent progress, they'll upload a video of like, um, I forget the official names, but they have their dog-like robot and their humanoid robot. Spot. Yes, Spot. Thank you. They can call it Spot all they want. It's still a terrifying looking little piece of equipment <laughs> to me, but uh, technologically super impressive. But people see those things and they go, this is it. This is how the uprising begins. But you're saying just because mechanically they have that, it's so much more complicated. We're nowhere near that point. And you don't personally believe that we'll reach that point where they will one day become our robot overlords. We will reach that point, but not in the foreseeable future. I mean, look at the self-driving cars. Cars are driving on pretty structured environment with uh, lines on the lane and signage and all these things and rules and structure. And it's taken uh, probably, I would say, trillion dollar investment to date, and we are still, still twenty, thirty years away from self-driving cars. 
That's so wild. That's so wild that you're 20, 30 years away when there's so many people that are convinced they already have one. But it's like, no, this isn't this isn't a truly self-driving car. There's still a long way to go. Yeah, it's it's impressive from a technical standpoint that yeah. you can link keep on a freeway and it will follow the curvature and all these things and even uh, change lanes. But that is like 10% of the problem. Imagine driving in a snowy road when there is a uh, intersection there's a child running after their pet onto the street and god knows what you know i mean yeah. those are the cases we need to cover as well especially since human life is involved there alan what about you man how do you think we get there not that i want you to get us to robot overlords but between <laughs> now let's let's focus on self-driving cars and <laughs> positive things but in the next 20 30 years how do you think what what's missing what are we gonna what jumps and leaps are we gonna make between now and then what are you anticipating what are you looking at yeah i mean I, to me you know whether the robot overlords take over and you know do things that are damaging to the human race is really a matter of like how what steps we take and in what order i think starting with things like moxie is actually like the best way to avoid this situation this catastrophe because you're giving uh you know robots the beginning of social awareness and the beginnings of the ability to start to uh, optimize for human well-being for you know our people's emotional responses if you just gave them embodiment and an understanding of the physical world and power over the physical world without that without the ability to understand people's needs i think that's what opens the way to the scariest scenarios i think that's what opens the way to uh people being kind of afraid of robots because embodiment is a really powerful thing you know there's this really intelligent agent behind you know your netflix recommendations but at the end of the day, it's just taking in user behavior and it's just outputting recommendations and mm -hmm. that's it. It has a very limited input and output space. But as soon as you introduce something into the physical world, the, out, the input and output space both blow up. Not only is it perceiving things, generally speaking, but it's also manipulating the real world. And the, there's so many different ways that it can accomplish whatever goals you give it if it's smart enough. So it's really important that you think about how do you control the means by which it accomplishes its goals and make sure that it knows how to uh, look out for human well-being, for human experience along the way? I think that's something where Moxie uh, and that sort of uh, area uh, being tackled first is you know, really, really mm -hmm. promising and encouraging. Right. Uh, if, if we can get that right, if we can get the, the empathy problem right as a first step, then uh, the, the the robots that can actually you know do things like operate heavy machinery seem less scary to me. Right. <laughs> well, you mentioned the first step, and we talk about this is the beginning. And and Pella, I, I believe I've even heard you say uh, somewhere Moxie is kind of phase one for Embody in a much uh, larger, longer plan. That you look down the road, and you've even said, and I really enjoyed this. Think of Moxie as almost like the Apple Macintosh, which I found very exciting. When you think of how far we've come just from that machine. Uh, so obviously you're looking 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road at the risk of asking you to reveal the 11 herbs and spices and give up any safe secrets here. Can you what what can you give us an idea of what step two or three might look like without revealing anything that's uh, super important for you to keep safe or embodied? But I'm just very curious about what comes after phase one. Uh, can you share anything about that? Yeah, I mean, I'll start by saying that uh, we have never been as connected as we are today with all the social media and tools we have for communication. There's 50 different ways we could do a video call. There is a hundred different ways we could chat with each other. And there's social media that let us connect to 
friends from my high school in Denmark. Uh, but yet, we have never been as lonely. Yeah. Um, so, 17% of the population in the U.S. suffers from mental health challenges, anxiety, depression, and other things. Loneliness and all these things, especially after COVID, is, it's blown up even further. Suicide rate among teens is at record highs. Uh, there is not a Gen Zer that I meet that doesn't suffer from anxiety. Uh, so the healthcare care system just does not have enough providers to pro- to take care of this uh, mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. And our uh, belief is that uh, AI friends and AI technology can help not to replace the need for human contact, as a matter of fact, to help facilitate that. Right. Um, so in a way, uh, the the narrative that we are thinking about is counter to the metaverse. The metaverse is trying to get us get us in more and more immersed into the into the virtual world, into the matrix, if you will. <laughs> and I think we have enough evidence to know that is not healthy. Mm. Just to uh, quote the Surgeon General in the U.S. Uh, last year or two years ago, he made this quote that says, "Loneliness and social isolation is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes every day." Uh, so the, the implications of this on mental health that leads to other health issues is tremendously challenging. And we are trying to put a, our little dent in the universe by creating AI friends that are going to be companions to people. We have started with children, which are the most uh, vulnerable in our society, and we've got to look out after. And then we are going to gradually provide it for other other areas. And then we are going to augment it once we have as Alan said, once we have that empathy built into the system, then the next step is to give it physically capability to provide also physical assistance to people that are in need uh, to help people uh, be able to live independently and 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 uh, and with a higher level of satisfaction or happiness, if you will. So, short term, it's 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 children. Uh, the next couple of years, you'll see uh, it expanding to other parts of the population to inject empathy and help people with uh, with learning to become happier in their lives, uh, which I think will help their people that are touching these people to become happier in their lives. So that's how we think we can make a better world uh, to use a cliche, but literally we are going to do it one child at a time and then later adults and elderly. That's a- fascinating window into your 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 plan and i appreciate you sharing with this uh that's amazing you also mentioned um obviously how covid-19 the pandemic sort of exacerbated things and you know we talked moxie's been in development for four years it launched uh i i i believe i first started hearing about it like right at the start of the pandemic i'm wondering has that uh refocused anything for you guys or just uh maybe lit a fire of like now more than ever it's necessary because yeah, 100%. These problems existed before COVID, but now so many people are isolated. We're we're doing an interview like this. Like the world is transformed dramatically and uh, uh, you know, technicalities and supply chain all that, take that out of the picture. I'm just wondering if 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 it impacted your your roadmap or or what you prioritized and what you guys are getting towards first or if it was just more of a sense of urgency. No, I mean, we had this insight in 2015 before we started the company that loneliness and mental health uh, are, we have a crisis in the, in those areas, even in 2015. Uh, the pandemic just uh, um, 
gave us gave us more confidence that we need to do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing. Uh, we're getting into the home stretch. We're almost there. Uh, I want to go back to one of the first things we said with our pop culture robots, Wally, R2D2, Baymax. At this point, I feel comfortable answering this, but are these accurate portrayals of what we can expect from future of robotics, from the future of robotics? What do you guys think? Are they, are, are they giving us false hope or is it an accurate idea of, of what we may land on someday? Well, I think that there's, it's real hope. <laughs> like we should be hoping for nice. those My kinds favorite of kind of hope. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, um, there are certain uh, kind of constraints that have to be addressed. And uh, the way that robots are envisioned, often like their, their interaction with the world seems to be the easy part in sci-fi, but actually that's the hard part. The embodiment mm -hmm. part is really the hard part. Um, and what we're going to solve first are sort of like disembodied ambient agents being really intelligent um, and then introducing those into the world. And, and, and when you conceive of things that way, it becomes interesting. There, there are certain applications uh, like embodied, like Moxie, where uh, you're sort of limiting the ability of that um, agent uh, in accordance with what it's able to accomplish in its physical form, which I think is really, really smart. Um, but there will also be ways that, um, you know, our current kind of digital assistants, like uh, Siri, Google Assistant, um, and, you know, the Google search and all of the big algorithms that we interact with um, start to manifest in physical form. And um, rather than having like a WALL-E or an R2-D2, um, you would just have something that knows you through other, you know, in other ways that accesses some sort of account that it has. Um, and, you know, you might be talking to R2-D2 and it'll access your account. And then when your friend talks to R2-D2, it accesses their account. You might have a different personality for each person it talks to. Um, the software will be much more um, complex, much more um, not necessarily intelligent, right? Because these robots sort of act like children. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, the implication of that is that the trajectory of artificial intelligence is that we'll build something that's childlike and then we'll build something that's adult-like, which is an intuition that's based on human development, but that's not really how the technological progress works. Instead, mm -hmm. we're building things. We already have AI that's extremely adult-like in certain ways, um, you know, can beat people at the most advanced board games, um, mm -hmm. but lacks even, you know, really, really basic what we would consider basic skills that children have, um, like the ability to uh, empathize, like the ability to simulate each other um, and to engage in sort of uh, spontaneous altruism. Uh, and, and, you know, that we, we really need to focus on getting that part right. Um, and if we can, uh, then the R2-D2s of the future will just be really, really smart versions of R2-D2. <laughs> uh, but, but one thing's for a... certain. We will call them R2-D2s. <laughs> that is decided. <laughs> Hopefully, right? <laughs> if we're lucky. If Disney yeah. licensing has anything to say about it. <laughs> we won't do it for free, but we'll call them R2-D2. <laughs> well, if Disney is the first to develop that uh, intelligent robot, it would be called R2-D2. Otherwise, probably not. But, you know, maybe called something else similar. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, well that, I mean, uh, Paolo, did you want to, uh, contribute at all to the, are they false hope or uh, did you have anything you wanted to say there? Yeah. Two, two things. One is R2D2's NLP stack could be very simple because it doesn't actually speak other than making sounds and beeps and sounds. Beeps and boops. Uh, uh, but, <laughs> but I think in terms of talking about sci-fi examples, uh, the movie Her has a voice mm. agent that is, uh, really, 
can get into your mind even to the point where the character the main character fell in love with a voice i think that is going to happen in the next five years wow i think we are we are not that far from that from happening and then that can lead to literally having what i think is our dream at embody to have therapies that understand you at deeper levels than you may understand yourself and provide you help and by the way this is not sci-fi because there's already a number of companies now that have received FDA approval for what they call prescribable digital therapeutics, which is software that applies cognitive behavior therapy and other evidence-based therapy techniques to help people with things such as substance and drug abuse and, mm. and the postpartum depression and insomnia and uh, ADHD and so on. So we'll see more of that and combine that with a interface like moxie that can create real connection and now you have a therapist that can actually help a lot of the things i was talking about which is the reason why we started this company so i think in the next five years we will see the movie her become reality wow wow that's that's wild um all right let me ask my, my last question here before we wrap things up uh strap in gentlemen as we prepare to go down the world's slipperiest slope ever um, so we've talked about robots for almost an hour now. We've talked about how, uh, they are a tool. Uh, we've talked about how they're getting smarter. They're becoming more aware. We want to make them more compassionate, all these different things. Is there a tipping point where they cease to just be a tool and now we have to acknowledge them as some sort of new form of individual, some sort of new being you talk about sci-fi. This is a uh, question we've tackled for ages. Do you foresee a point in time? where the switch flips, where there's a new tipping point and it ceases to be a tool. It is now its own individual and I must recognize it as such. Or no, these are tools. That's sci-fi getting in my brain. I'm crazy. What do you guys think? I think it should be a tool because if, if it's an individual, then it has its own motives. It has its own goals. And we actually have to morally respect those, which we shouldn't be creating. Like we should. We're playing God. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's it. That's the, what that is. The goal of an agent should fundamentally be to serve our emotional well-being and you know as long as we go down that road i think that you know the hers of the future will be good there'll be things that actually are good for us fundamentally because they're optimized to be good for us because they're tested to be good for us um, and not to be you know their own agents with their own motives or their own goals or to serve what i think is more likely to serve other people's goals that aren't our own so that the you know the, the agent that the user is interacting with is extremely smart but it's not serving your goals. It's trying to get you to buy something. You know, that would be a shame if that was the case. Um, I think that, you know, um, they should be tools to be used on behalf of people that are thinking on behalf of, uh, of the user. Um, and as long as we, uh, as we, long as we stick to that really closely, um, then uh, we don't need to worry about uh, these other issues of, you know, respecting the more, you know, the, the yeah. goals, intrinsic goals of a, of a, of a different agent. Fair enough. Paolo? What do, you, what do you think? Yeah, what I would was? just say I fully agree. I, many people in my field talk about building a fully autonomous robot. And I remind them that same thing that I said. I said, I don't think we need a fully autonomous robot. They, they need to be serving a goal that we give them and we have control over them. A fully autonomous robot would be my child. Fully autonomous. Yeah. It doesn't always do what I want him to do. <laughs> For better or worse. <laughs> for better, for mostly for, for better, it seems like he's doing great. But that's good. But, uh, that's good. As as an anecdote. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, all right. Uh, well, unfortunately, I, I have to wrap things up. But first and foremost, Paolo, uh, thank you so very, very much for hanging out with Alan and I today. It has been just uh, amazing to have you here on the show and share your insights and experiences. It's just a huge treat. Uh, congrats on everything. And, and I, honestly, I can't wait to see what's next from from you and the team over Embodied. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank Again. you as well. It's it's It was really fun and very engaging conversation. I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah, you, man. I second that. Thanks, Paolo. For sure. Thank uh, you. And thanks to you guys, our listeners, for tuning in and joining us. If this is your first episode of The Feelings Lab, be sure to go back in the feed and check out some of our chats from season one. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new guest and a whole bunch of new questions. Uh, speaking of questions, if you have one, ask us. Send us an email. We're at thefeelingslab at hume.ai. I put it right here on the screen for you. T-H-E-F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S-L-A-B at Hume. H-U-M-E dot A-I. Whatever you want. It's the internet. No rules. Ask away. I'm going to regret that. Uh, anyway, farewell for now, my friends. From the Feelings Lab, I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody. and Stay safe out there.